Well, this morning I would like to begin with a very important question that I want us to consider. And the question is, what should be the greatest visible difference between Christians and non-Christians? Now that's a very penetrating question, isn't it? And uh, that covers a wide variety of ground. And uh, that is a very, very necessary question. But let me see if I can help you today with what I think is the answer by sharing with you a very simple contrast that I think gets right to the heart of the answer that we ought to give. Uh, Here's the contrast. Uh, Non-Christians love their friends. Uh, Please finish it with me. Christians should love their friends and their enemies. There you go. That is the greatest visible difference between Christians and non-Christians. There was a pastor by the name of Herschel Hobbs who had a very wonderful ministry for almost 25 years in Oklahoma City. And Herschel Hobbs one time said this. Look at his penetrating words. One of the greatest tests of the degree of a person's transformation into the likeness of Christ is his reaction to the one who does evil to him. And Hobbes was exactly right on. Uh, Facing the cross that he would be hung on, uh, Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, Now is the Son of Man glorified. God is glorified in Him. What Jesus was telling us is the greatest demonstration of the glory of God is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. God killing His own Son to atone for the sins of his enemies, only God could do that. Only God could do that. You know, Martin Luther one time said, if I were God and the world treated me the way it has treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. which causes me to respond, aren't you glad Martin Luther wasn't God? But didn't he have a point? God should kick the wretched thing to pieces. And yet instead, God loves Now, we need to learn from the love of God as his people. And today, we are coming to what some Bible students believe is the highest point of the Sermon on the Mount. We are coming to a message that I'm entitling what Jesus has to say about love. And as Jesus finishes now applying the law to us, he comes to perhaps the most challenging and difficult application of all, 
And that is that we are called to love our enemies. Someone has said this, and it is absolutely true. Only disciples who have been born of the Spirit, who have been enabled by the grace of Christ, are are any way possible able to live by this standard. And I think all of us, after studying the Sermon on the Mount, would say to that, Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Now here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to develop this teaching for us in three ways. First of all, he's going to show us the Pharisees' distortion. Secondly, he's going to give us his blessed correction. And then because Jesus is such a wonderful teacher, he's going to get down to the nitty-gritty as to why we ought to live this way, and then, for our blessed help, how we ought to live this way. So if you would take your Bibles, let's open again to Matthew chapter 5, and let's begin by looking together at the Pharisees' distortion that sadly many people have absorbed in their lives. Matthew chapter 5, and I want you to begin with me at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, says the Lord Jesus, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now let's just stop right there. Here's the distortion that the Pharisees had brought to the word of God. They define neighbor very restricted. Uh, What Jesus is doing in verse 43 is he is summarizing the common teaching of the rabbis on Leviticus 19 and verse 18. Uh, Let me show you what that passage says from the Old Testament. Here's what God said to his ancient people. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And how important is this to God? He says, I am the Lord. Now, does anybody see in this verse where it says you can hate your enemies? Anybody see that in the verse? In fact, there is no Old Testament text that says we have the right to personally hate anyone. So we ask the question, how then did many of the rabbis teach such a distorted view? Well, follow me very carefully. Uh, The Greek word for neighbor that is used here comes from the word uh, plasion. Plasion. And it means near, it means uh, one who is close. So neighbor came to refer to one's fellow countrymen, one's fellow Israelite. And here's what the rabbis did. They restricted this verse to mean those close to you in your group, those that are like you. Now by a false reasoning then, they assumed what this meant was you could hate outsiders. You could hate people you considered your enemies. Say, say, by the way, isn't the human heart amazing? Isn't the human heart amazing? That you can twist the very word of God to allow the kind of hatred that exists in the human heart. How amazing is the evil in the human heart? 
Now, twisting scripture in this distorted way left plenty of seeds to feed the hatred in the human heart. And so what the Pharisees did was what many politicians we hear do today. They developed enemies' lists. The people they thought it was okay to hate. Can I ask you a question this morning? You have an enemies list? Do I have an enemies list? It is a terrible thing to be a Christian and have an enemies list. That is a distortion of the Word of God. Now, wonderfully, Jesus then gives us his correction. And Jesus' correction, found in verse 44, is he defined neighbor as it ought to be defined to include enemies. Look at verse 44. But I tell you, says Jesus, love your enemies. The Greek word for enemies here actually comes from a root word that means hostility. So Jesus is leaving no room for any doubt whatsoever. Our neighbor includes those who are actively opposed to us. By the way, isn't that what the parable of the Good Samaritan is designed to teach? That most famous of all parables is designed to teach us how to love our enemies. And there are two very critical lessons in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Number one, our our enemy is our neighbor because the Jews hated the Samaritans. Therefore, when the Samaritans stopped to help this Jew who was beaten and robbed, he was helping his enemy. And secondly, the parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us what agape love, God's love, is all about. It is love that performs benevolent deeds at personal cost to oneself. In fact, if I could define for us a neighbor, here's what a neighbor would be. Anyone that we are in a position to help even those who may despise us. That's the biblical definition of a neighbor. A neighbor is anyone that we are in a position to help, even those who would despise us. No wonder we need the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. No wonder. Now, Jesus is such a wonderful teacher that he doesn't end here. He knows that we have questions. We have questions like, well, why? Why is this the standard that God calls us to? And we have questions, how? How in the world can I do this? Say, do you not love Jesus because he is the son of God and he is the son of man, but he is also a wonderful teacher? We love him because he's a wonderful teacher. And Jesus moves to answering our questions. 
not only why in the world should we love our enemies, but Lord Jesus, can you show us how? And so let's spend a few moments, shall we, looking at the answers to these questions. Here's the first one. Why should we do this? Well, notice Jesus gives us a number of answers. First of all, we are acting like God's children when we do this. Look with me again at verse 45. He says, I tell you, love your enemies, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now that expression, sons of your Father in heaven, is a Hebrew idiomatic saying. In the Old Testament, uh, son of meant that you shared the characteristics of someone. So when he says, as a believer, you are sons of your Father in heaven, what he means is, you share the characteristics of Almighty God. Now we've got to be very careful here. This is not describing attaining a relationship with God because we love our enemies like He does. Rather, this is describing acting like what we are. Acting like those who share the nature of God. Why ought we to love our enemies? Because when we do... We are showing the family likeness. Finish the statement with me. God is love. God is love. And therefore, when we love our enemies, we're demonstrating that we are like our Father. Let's look at the second reason why. Secondly, we are not acting like pagan non-believers. Now, by the way, if that sounds a little harsh towards the unsaved, when's the last time you referred to them as pagan non-believers? Jesus intends it to sound harsh like that. That's his intent. Uh, Look with me at the rest of the verse. Uh, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Verse 46, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Now, pagans in Jesus' day were Gentiles who worshipped false gods and acted like the devil. They had no faith in Christ at all. And tax collectors were the worst despised group amongst the Jews. They were those who sold out to the Romans to collect taxes on their own people. They were considered traitors to their people, extortionists because they could extort as much as they could get. And then they were considered unclean because they regularly were involved with pagan Gentiles. To the Jewish people, these two groups, pagan Gentiles and tax collectors, were as low as you could go. Yet I want you to notice what Jesus says. They love their own kind. Don't the tax collectors love other tax collectors? Don't the pagans greet other pagans? They care for each other. This evening I'll have the privilege once again to preach in the Marquette Branch Prison, Level 1. 
Uh, Randy Gilbertson and I will be there for two services tonight. And also once a quarter I get an opportunity to be in level five over at the prison and preach there. Now level five is the most secure level in the Marquette Branch prison. In fact, uh, they tell me because it's the tightest security level in the prison, prisoners uh, have very little socializing time to get out of their cells. In fact, I was told by uh, one guard, one officer, you have to have caused trouble somewhere in the state prison system to be in level five. The prisoners in level five right over here at Marquette Brandt Prison are the worst criminals in the place. Yet here's what I notice. They love each other. They like each other. They have an affinity for one another. In fact, they love coming to chapel because they are being allowed out of their cells to socialize with others who are in the same situation and are exactly like them. Now would you notice then Jesus' powerful point, if all we do is love those like us, those in our group, we are no better than level five prisoners. Jesus doesn't pull any punches, does he? You know what this means for us? Where the world's love ends and they say, this is who we will love, this is how far we will go, and at this point we stop loving, that's the place where our love is just beginning. The place where the non-believer says, I will love this far and I will not love any further, that's the place where our love is just starting. Wow, what a powerful thing Jesus is saying. He's not finished. Look at his third reason. Why should we love our enemies? We are realizing the goal of our salvation. Look at me at verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now many have trouble with this verse because surely God does not require perfection of us. You ever read this verse and say, this just can't be what it really means. God would never require perfection of us. Let me tell you what the word perfect here means. It is the Greek word teleos, and it means having attained the end or aim for which it was designed. Now when something attains the end or is complete for which it was designed, that means it's perfect. So brothers and sisters, Jesus means exactly what he's saying here. He means God demands perfection. Now since none of us in this life will ever achieve perfection, 
then what in the world does this mean? Let me give you two answers. Number one is this. Salvation has to be by grace through faith that we receive as a gift or none of us would ever qualify. That's what this has to mean. Since none of us can be perfect, God must give us salvation as a gift. The cross is necessary because none of us can meet God's standards. By the way, just let me ask you this morning. Have you come to the place in your own life where you realize you need a Savior? Have you come to the place where you recognize no matter how hard I try to be, no matter how much good I could ever do, God's standard is so high above me that unless I have a Savior, I am lost. Here's the second thing this means. As a Christian, we always need growth and we should pursue that growth vigorously. Paul says, not that I have attained or have already become perfect, but I press on towards the goal. Same Greek word, teleos. What he is saying is, I know that I have not arrived as a Christian. God's standard is way out in front of me, and I am vigorously pursuing that goal because that's why Jesus saved me. Now here's the point. What is one of the clearest signs that we are growing as believers? It is loving our enemies. Because that's the arena in which God's perfection shines the most. Look at where this verse fits in the context. We are talking about God's love towards His enemies. Now we are saying this is a reflection of His perfection. So where does God's perfection shine the most? It shines in His love of His enemies. Therefore, it is most obvious that I am growing in my salvation when it is seen how I treat my enemies. There's an old-time pastor by the name of Pastor William Secker. He wrote a book in 1899. And in this book, he made this profound statement. To do evil for good is human corruption. To do good for good is civil retribution. But to do good for evil is Christian Perfection. Exactly. Exactly. When is Christian growth realized in its greatest degree? When we are loving our enemies. Now I don't know about you, I'm not done with my questions. And Jesus isn't done with his answers. Because he not only answers in this passage why, he answers how. He gets down to the nitty-gritty. How many of us would rather say, Jesus, we're leaving now. The nitty-gritty is not for us. Jesus is a nitty-gritty kind of teacher. (laughs) He really is. 
And so, Lord, how do I love my enemies? Well, let's look at them, shall we? Number one, we pray for him. Verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why does Jesus begin with prayer? Well, let William Barclay give you the answer. We cannot go on hating another man in the presence of God. The surest way of killing bitterness is to pray for the man we are tempted to hate. All God's people said. When we're in prayer, we are in the presence of God in a concentrated way. I tell my prayer group on Wednesday, I call my pastor's prayer supporters, this is the one meeting of the week I dare not miss. Because when I'm in prayer with the people of God, it softens my heart. And I come out of that prayer time at noon on Wednesday more compassionate than I went in. And you can't be in the presence of God and continue to hate other people. One Bible teacher has put it this way. It's like a wonderful circle. The more you pray, the more you love. The more you love, the more you pray. The more you pray, the more you love. And this is the first step. Because prayer is the first step that softens our heart, making us willing to do good to an enemy. Jesus knows what he's teaching here. The second answer to this question, how, is we are to return good for their evil. Uh, he says in verse 45, here's what God does. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, do you know this is the classic passage in the Bible on God's common grace? Did you know that? God has two kinds of grace, saving grace and common grace. Saving grace, He offers to all people who will receive it. If you reject that saving grace, you are lost. So God makes distinctions. There are the saved and there are the lost. The lost are the ones who reject the common grace of God. They end up lost. The saving grace of God. But here's the amazing thing. Even on those whom God extends His saving grace and it's rejected, God shows common grace. He shines the sun on them. He sends the rain on them. I wondered uh, how beneficial is sunshine. We don't get enough of it up here, do we? Uh, let me share with you how beneficial sunshine is. It increases individual productivity and intellectual capacity. It affects our health. It makes us feel and look better. It boosts the immune system. It lowers cholesterol naturally with sensible sun exposure, and it reduces stress, anxiety, and depression. 
We know that last one, don't we? We suffer from SAD up here, don't we? Seasonal affective disorder because we don't get enough sun. Sun is a natural antidote to depression. Now, how many of us want to say this morning, sun is one of God's greatest gifts? Now imagine this. You're down at the beach at McCarty's Cove. Sitting there, soaking in the sun. Watching the icebergs floating out on Lake Superior. <laughs> We've all got pictures on our cell phones, don't we? Next to you could very well be sitting an atheist. Is he getting the same benefits of the sun as you are? Yeah. Here's a guy who says in a loud voice, There is no God. And God, in His common grace, is still shining the sun on Him. I also wondered one of the benefits of rain. It causes the rain to fall on the righteous as well as the unrighteous. So look at the benefits of rain. Water covers most of Earth's surface. It's essential for life. This is incredible. 70% of our body mass. It is a universal solvent. And it moderates the surface temperature of the earth so that we do not burn up on planet earth. Now think about this. You may have a neighbor who never reads the Bible, never goes to church, curses and swears, yet when it rains, his grass gets just as green as your grass does. Can we miss the application this morning? You got someone who hates you? Show them some sunshine. You got someone in your life who despises you? You go get them a glass of water. And you say, here. We, as Christians, return good for evil. Now, here's the last one. We are to greet them with well wishes. Verse 47. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Now this is more than a higher hello. Hebrew greeting was shalom. Shalom meant peace, well-being, prosperity, the blessing of God. So here comes the guy who can't stand me. Here comes the guy who dislikes me. Here comes the guy that I'm wary about. Blessing to you. Blessing to your spouse. Blessing to your children. Well-being and good wishes to you. It is how God's people love. 
My father was a very imperfect Christian who had many rough edges. But one thing I'm always grateful for is that my father never held grudges that I ever saw. I'm very grateful about that. One day when I was 16 years old, I came home from man camp. There was a lady in our church who was staying with us. Her husband was so abusive towards her that she didn't know where to turn. And so my parents took her into our home and she stayed with us for a week. Finally, she found uh, another lady in our church to live with. The marriage ended in divorce. And for many years, those two ladies uh, lived together. And, and my folks would always look out for Hazel. In fact, uh, many, many times on Sunday afternoon, uh, Hazel would join us when we'd go out to eat after church. And my folks ministered to her. Can you believe this? Fast forward 17 years, I, I was a pastor in my hometown. And that former husband started coming to my church. Isn't truth stranger than fiction? Now, he wasn't coming because he was seeking God. He was coming because he was seeking a widow in our church. He was now twice divorced, and and he was going to marry this widow in our church. And, And I warned her, do not marry this guy. I went over to their home, and she invited him over and me over, and, and, and we talked. And you know what he said? He said, your father broke up my first marriage. The Bible says, whom God has joined together, let not man set asunder. And he said, your dad set us asunder. And I was just shocked. Well, she married him. Six months later, she was so terrified of him, she had to get a restraining order against him. And my father was vindicated. His name was Larry, and here's the thing that amazed me. Every time my dad would see Larry in a restaurant or in the store, he would walk up to him, Stick out his hand and say, how you doing, Larry? Finally, one day I said, Dad, why do you do that? You know what he said about you. You know how he despises you. Why don't you just avoid him? Here's what my dad said. Why should I do that? I've done nothing wrong to him. Why should I let his attitude keep me from being friendly to him? Thank you, Dad. Thank you. You got that one right. You got that one right. Now, Lord Jesus, help me to get it right as well. Help me to get it right as well.
Let's bow together, shall we? Our eyes closed. Our heads bowed. May I ask you again? Do you have an enemy's list? Are there groups you despise? Are there those you have been done wrong to that you do not pray for, you do not do good to, and you do not wish them well? And if that is true of me or is true of you, here's what the Bible says. We are not growing as a Christian. There's no way that we can be growing as a Christian if we say, my love will stop at a certain group, those who are like me, those who I appreciate, and my love will go no further. Oh, that God would preserve us from that. Listen, however we have to get our hearts right today, whatever decisions we must make in the quietness of this moment, let us do that very thing. Let us ask the Lord to search us, try us, to know us, to see if there would be some wicked way within us. And then as we confess that to Him and thank Him for His cleansing and the attitude adjustment, then may we say, Now, Lord, lead me in the way everlasting. Oh, blessed Savior, Thank you for your saving grace, which most of us in this room have experienced. Help the one who has not to realize they need a Savior. And then as you gave us your common grace long before we even knew you or loved you, so help us to extend that graciousness to those we are in a position to help, even those who would despise us. That we may be sons of our Father who is in heaven. In His great name. Amen.